That's your decision now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult. But in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central straight to your front door. And I got something for you. Guys. Yeah. So I just... So it's a little loud. Oh, man, I like that. But it's my it's the Miami. It's the Miami with my little logo that I made. Um, and it's actually the logo was made by um, the best, one of the best friends of the two guys that died, right? Oh, and I wow. asked them, I said, hey, as I'm getting out, I need a symbol because I'm doing this veteran advocacy stuff. So I need to yeah. have something, right? And to, That's really cool, two 1911s. To two 1911s signify the two guys that died, Yeah, but they also signify uh, you know, our right to bear arms and that yeah. we've bared arms in combat. Awesome, and then the star? Is the star was because it came from from uh, within our rank. So as then as leaders, sergeant majors, yeah, or, or just leaders, yeah. right? Like we yeah. pursued to that. Yeah. Um, so there's some symbolism in it, right? There's some colors, but uh, it was just something created. And then I took that out as I wanted to do. So my leveraging a reach, yeah. I, I realized, as you would know, well, is the EDC community. Yeah. I'm like, how do I get into this without? starting a business or, be, or, or, or you know, doing this full time. And I realized that EDC, when I did the analytics, you know, those little hashtags yeah. reaches a lot of people. Yeah, because everybody's interested. In and everybody's interested. And I'm like, well, we, I like guns, right? So I took to guns yeah. again when I retired because I was really burnt out on some of the other stuff. So guns became sort of my hobby to build them and just try to pass those on to my kid. So anyway, that's kind of what I appreciate that. that. Yeah, Thank yeah, you so yeah, much. Yeah. yeah. So guys, we're on the Black Rifle Coffee podcast. It's your host on the Mike Force edition of this. You're seeing this on Monday because Monday's for Mike Force. Uh, my name is Mike Glover. I'm the host of the uh, Mike Force Black Rifle Coffee podcast. You guys could also find my podcast, the Mike Force podcast, on YouTube. This is the guest version of this hosted by Black Rifle Coffee, but I do my own podcast on Mike Glover Actual on YouTube uh, where you could find my content and then Mike Force, the podcast on YouTube and everywhere that podcaster found. I have a special guest today. Um, Eric, thank you for coming to the podcast today. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, so me and you have conversed and, and talked over the years, and you just recently recently retired as of 2020, and I've kind of saw you dabble in social media. It was, it was interesting to see, because it's like, when I see guys who have never been on social media go on social media, there's telltale indications of them going on social and like trying to navigate the process, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially guys with backgrounds in the military or even in special operations where uh, up until 2016, I didn't have any social media. Hmm. I mean, I had MySpace trying to meet chicks online in fire bases <laughs> in Afghanistan, um, but limited access to any of it because even as a policy, it wasn't even allowed. Right. I mean, it just wasn't. Now I hear you could have all, I mean, I see guys who are on, act, who are on active duty um, and they have um, social media accounts. Let's start, first of all, by uh, describing uh, your background, who you are, and like where you come from. Okay. And, and we'll, we'll kick it off that way. Okay. No, perfect. I appreciate it. Yeah, so my background, actually, my, my family came uh, to Miami from Cuba. I kept, my mom was pregnant with me, uh, and we essentially caught the last flight leaving Havana 
during that time frame in May of 1971. Wow, if we dude. Wouldn't, if we wouldn't have caught that flight, I would have been born on that other side. Wow. So I don't know how that would have gone, right? Really cool. So uh, we ended up, we ended up in, in Miami, uh, in Hialeah, and that, you know, open, open arms. They welcomed me, and so I grew up as a Cuban-American in the streets of Hialeah in Miami. Is Hialeah like a uh, the, the, the Cuban-American it, district? It is. It okay. is. It's, it's kind of where— Little Havana. Uh, it's, the, it's a little Havana, right, kind of, uh, mm -hmm. and that's where we all come, and the community takes care of each other, and then later on you branch out to Miami or the other aspects of it. Mm. Um, and so there, like, I grew up speaking, you know, Spang uh, uh, Spanish and English, uh, going to a uh, Cuban American school, right, and immersed in my culture, um, and at one point then uh, decided um, as I was growing up, I wanted I wanted to join the military. That I wanted to, to move on. Uh, there was a, an important person in my life, uh, and I keep his name simple, uh, with Mr. Clean, and Mr. Clean was essentially uh, adopted me uh, as a son because my my father, uh, my mom and dad never married, and so mm. you know that was an, an interesting upbringing. But I had that community, and I had Mr. Clean, uh, and he had done some really neat stuff for the government, right? Uh, and he was just my role model. He was kind of like the, the Cuban James Bond, right? And I just loved it. And I just loved this man. And, and I wanted to be like him. So I joined the military. And uh, somehow it was like many of our origin stories. There comes that person to your high school in that uniform. I saw a Marine. I'm like, well, that's what I want to be, right? And, and I just wanted to, uh, to go ahead and do that. Uh, and I needed to leave the streets of Miami because at, at that time, by 1990s, it was really rough. You mm. were either going to get into drugs, you were going to go to jail, or um, it could have been rough for you. So it could have been rough yeah. for me, right? So, Height of crime, too, around the 80s and 90s. There's a lot of spikes is, in crime. It is. a lot of that going on. Um, so I was fortunate I got into the Marine Corps, and that's how I started my career. Originally, it was supposed to be uh, active duty. Recruiter got the best of me, put me into the reserve program. And as you can imagine, for the next five and a half years in the Marines, I focused on getting back out active duty. So I was uh, infantry. I was a tow gunner. I served uh, as a scout sniper on a civilian's target acquisition team, doing some JTF-6 counter-narcotics operations mm. as, as a young Marine in the mountains of California. So that was pretty cool. Uh, but there was no, you know, that, that was obviously way prior to the GWA and right post uh, the Gulf War. Mm. Um, ended up finding a period where I had uh, aspirations to go to either the FBI, one of the intelligence organizations, um, but I wanted to do my military career and then I wanted to do academics and then find my way to these agencies. Um, at some point I was like, okay, this Marine Corps stuff, is just too hard, I love it, but they're not bringing me onto active duty. There was just a sort of like a stubbornness and ended up seeing um, the Army through the lens of the Defense Language Institute at Monterey, California. And if you've mm. ever been there, it's just, it's beautiful. You know, these uh, military folks are there for about a year learning these exotic languages. I'm like, well, I can do this. So I transferred into the Army, got through the initial uh, process to be military intelligence. Um, and luckily, throughout the, uh, during the process, I got picked up to go to 7th Special Forces Group. So that mm. was great. So essentially, well, my entire career in the Army has been in soft. Ended up going to 7th Special Forces Group for about two years. Mm -hmm. uh, had a little incursion in uh, Ecuador where I got I got gun, uh, gunshot. Uh, the ODA got attacked. Mm. Um, and uh, about six months later, went through selection. And then that's the, the story and ended up doing the, the next 20 years uh, within an organization in USASOC. Mm. U.S. Army Special Operations Command. So this organization is a special missions organization. And you spent 20 years in that organization, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of the things for listeners who are listening to this, there's a lot of organizations who have been very good at not advertising who they are. And this organization is one of those organizations. So there are a lot of organizations who are not good at 
um, keeping themselves concealed and covered and um, following NDAs and all that stuff. So that ride for you, for what you could talk about for the 20 years that you were doing it, how was that for you fulfillment-wise, purpose-wise? Was it everything you expected? Did you have a good time? Do you, did you feel fulfilled after a 20-year run of it? Absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was actually uh, prepared to do longer, to be longer. Um, but the toll became evident. It took a toll on family. It took a toll on me. And I saw it take a toll on my friends. Um, but that, after a certain point towards the end, as I was getting ready uh, to retire, I had the opportunity to retire. I would reflect back on my career and go, wow, I just, I cannot, I cannot still even write down just to, to acknowledge the things that I was able to do uh, and at the levels that we were able to do it at. It was just amazing, right? Um, but yeah, I, I definitely was able, that was, that was amazing. Um, it's like I spent 20 years in, in, in my own, in its own military, if you would, its own world. Yeah, I, I have um, few and limited experiences with that organization, but all the feedback I get from the guys over there, um, I mean, these guys are lawyers, academics, like very intelligent human beings, and uh, they're sole proprietors. They were able to do things that truly I was like, holy crap, you guys do that? And, you know, this idea of like Jason Bourne and, you know, all the, the, you know, mystery shrouded and, and covert and clandestine operations, I was pretty impressed by the, the ability and the latitude to be able to do a whole bunch of things that would require a 50-page con up on, on the, our military side of it. Um, when, when you reflect on that experience, and we, we had talked about this recently, it was very difficult for you to ba basically say, hey, I'm coming out from behind the curtain and now I'm going to live a more public life and transition from being a military sergeant major in special operations to transitioning into a position where now your focus is family, advocacy, specifically with veterans, and then putting your life back together after you just lived this pattern of life very orchestrated in the military. How has that transition been for you? Extremely difficult. Um, it's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, we're very good at dealing with chaos, right? Mm. So we're, we're comfortable in chaos. And so I want to say that my transition was chaotic. So it was comfortable, right? That didn't make it easy, but it, it, it made me be able to understand that I got to get through it. That's what we do in chaos. We know mm -hmm. we got to get through it. So the blood starts going, you know, the neurons firing, all the muscle memory kicks in. And so the first thing was um, I needed to take care of my family. And that was through way of taking care of myself, which was very odd because we I don't ever remember even taking thinking. I don't remember <laughs> taking care of ourselves. As a matter of fact, yeah. I remember a lot of it lying to myself and lying to my docs, blink, blink, you know. When we get the, the you know the yearly physical to go back out the door, it's like, are you okay? Roger that. I'm good to go. Right, mm. but you're you're not even cataloging some of the things that are starting to hurt. So towards the end, the the, the catalyst to to entering that chaos was the death of uh, two of my friends uh, at the organization, um, and not to get into it, but it, it was death by suicide. Mm. Um, 
and, and that was hard because, um, you know, as sergeant majors, as people that were in, just entrusted to lead, right, naturally to lead. And again, I, you know, to preface it, there's a lot of sergeant majors in these organizations. You know, we're like privates, but yeah. you still have the responsibility to mentor. We, we mentor officers, we mentor each other, and definitely we're going to mentor the young ones, right? Um, and so to see these two guys lose hope, essentially, is how I phrase it, right? Because I don't necessarily care why. Mm. It is that they lost hope. And in reflecting in the mirror and going, well, why is that not me? Mm. I trained them. They're our DNA. We had a piece of it. You know, we understand uh, the fundamentals of our organization. And then to get into it, there's a certain DNA that then gets infused in you, right? So you're, you're going back to that process. And so to see those guys, I then had to take a knee, went to a really dark corner, uh, and essentially opened what I called my Pandora's boxes, right? All of those deployments, all of those trips, all of those injuries were always shoved into these de- into these Pandora boxes mm-hmm. post-deployments. And they all started to come out emotions, emotions that I didn't know that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's where that transition was difficult. A, leaving an organization like this uh, takes a little bit of work just to kind of uh, um, get prepared to re-enter the military, if you would, and then get out of it. And then go, well, I've done this. This has been my personality. It's been my family's life, right? Because it's just not me. It actually takes that whole family for me to be able, to have been able to be in that unit that long, it's my, that support system. If it wasn't for my wife and if it wasn't for my son, I probably wouldn't have been able to, to operate there that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll stop there because that, that's kind of an, an aspect of it. So you... These guys who wanted up um, taking their own lives, were they actually on active duty, or was it transitional as a process, or was it? Or they were they civilians? No, they were active duty. Oh uh, gosh. Well, um, yeah. One maybe had come back. Um, it would, and they were a month apart. So one maybe, I mean, um, you know, not for the specifics. Yet, I know their leadership was um, monitoring, just like they monitor all of us, right? Yeah. But at, at that time, we weren't looking at, oh God, this guy's suicidal. Like how many times do we really in a team room go, I guess now, hopefully they're doing it. Hey, we got to keep an eye on this guy because the worst thing is and something you said earlier, we can solve almost any problem. You put mm-hmm. our, our, our type of people against a problem, we will figure it out. Yeah. What I cannot do and we cannot do is bring back those two guys. Mm. I can't. I can't put them back together, right? Um, and so the, the first guy, they kind of knew, uh, and then the second one, uh, about a month later, whatever triggered uh, in him, um, he, he lost hope, right? And, and that, was, that, was, uh, that was painful for all of us. Yeah, I, my fear looking at maybe like right now and moving forward is that the guys who are part of, whether they're military organizations or special operations, tip of the spear guys, there is a large bulk of warfighters who fought the most egregious and most substantial fights in the global war on terror that were overt and covert. And now things are kind of coming to a head as things kind of ramp down, as things get a little quiet, as policy shifts, changes, and people come home. Like how long can a guy sustain that much combat, that much experience until something snaps or something breaks? And I, you know, I've talked about suicide before and my experience with a lot of guys who have taken their own lives, even in, in recent, my personal history, a lot of them I think have checked out because they look at themselves as a liability. Mm-hmm. They realize, 
hey, you know, there's assets and liabilities. I might not be strong. I might be weak. I'm grossly affecting the people around me. I'm not the liability. And what do we do with liabilities? We get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And so they take their own lives. And, and you know, hearing about guys on active duty doing that from special operations communities, I feel, I want to say optimistically that, you know, that's an anomaly, but I feel like progressively it might evolve into something that's more of a problem. You know, it, it's not just it, where it used to be transitional issues. Yep. It's like issues, period, you know. Um, I know some of the things that you're focused on getting out post-military is these issues in, in, in uh, veteran advocacy. And something that you mentioned to me before is this cognitive load, this understanding of like, hey, you are tra trained in specific trade crafts and, and special skills, and those things are what drive you behaviorally. Mm -hmm. When all of that goes away and there's no operational in-state or requirement, you're left as a civilian to kind of, oh man, I have all these structures and patterns and processes and now I don't have to do that. How has that affected your psychology and how have you been able to kind of transition and kind of move away from you know, looking at yourself as a potential liability? No, I love that. And, and, and thank you for framing it like that. I, I think it... It obviously shows that that's important to you and that you've thought about it because not a lot of people think about it that way, right? Like I've used the thoroughbred analogy, right? Like what happens when you when you know your horse outside breaks a leg, and I'm assuming you know you're going to take him out because he's he's not useful, right? And I think that's what unfortunately some operators feel like, mm -hmm. hey, I'm I'm I'm, I'm no, I can no longer operate, and that's an identity. Yeah. And so we also mentioned earlier that identity, right? And um, and so that's a, that's a piece of it, right? And so the cognitive piece. I didn't even consider uh, to probably within the last three to four years, mm. right? Like I knew I was declining. And, and we talked about some of the schools that we've gone to and I went to where you get a, it's a lot of memorization. It's a lot of um, working um, long days. And still what, what keeps us going is that ability to think. We're thinkers, mm -hmm. right? And so the physical piece, yes. The, the lack of sleep, yes. Um, but it's that cognitive piece. And in time, I was like, man, I'm, I'm starting to fall behind on my languages. I can't, you know, I can, you know, just for simply, I can't remember the license plates like I used to. I can't redraw the inside of this room when I went through it in an exercise. Or like all of the stuff that, that's mm -hmm. what we're good at doing. Or even controlling or, you know, just the stuff that we had to keep up with. I'm like, there's something going on here. I wasn't even aware necessarily what traumatic brain injuries were. Mm. And if it wasn't until I went to the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, and prior to that, when we were doing some of the diagnostics, uh, to prepare to retire. And in that time frame, then SOCOM and, and the greater USASOC started to focus on that because they're mm -hmm. like, hey, there is a correlation between traumatic brain injury and suicide. Yeah, right? for sure. Everybody, you know, in, in the larger scope will look at it from post-traumatic stress. I'm dropping the D, right? Like I can't stand that disorder word. I'd rather call it an injury because I know, well, I've healed from it. I'm healing from post-traumatic stress. I can articulate and understand what caused me to fear that I was going to lose my life, right? Or that uh, some more injury or something like that. The traumatic brain injuries were like, oh, so wait a minute. When I was in Ramadi at the, in December 18 and leaving a target's house and an RPG hit within three, three meters away and that blast that hit me across that blue gate and, you know, I, I lost unconsciousness for seconds and then, the, you know, the battle ensued. That was a traumatic brain injury. Mm. And then the effects of then, the, for example early you know, March of 2007, we're getting ready to go do some other operations. I'm like, 
I'm just not thinking clearly, right? And mm. what do we call it? Like, man, I got this fog. Mm. I can't think clearly. You know, speaking to your wife earlier about sleeping, and my wife is like, you're a freaking zombie. Mm. You don't sleep. You come back from deployment. You're shaking. You're moving. You crawl up in a little ball in the corner of the bed. You're walking around the house. You go sleep because I wasn't sleeping, right? Mm. All of that was affecting me cognitively, mm. right? So I would submit that one of the more important things today to look at is how these operators or anyone feels about the way that they can process. How are they are thinking? Are you, you know, to have cognitive fog, let's, let's pay attention to that. Let's pay attention to your ability, because that also affects your emotion, that affects your mood and your anger. Um, so for me, what was important, even when I went to Nike as an example, wasn't the muscular skeletal pain. Yeah, I had muscular skeletal pain. I've had a vertical, almost, you know, I almost, I had a very bad um, military free fall where I, I got hit for vertical, right? And you know how bad that, that can mm -hmm. be. Um, but when I started to realize that I was losing my memory, right, that I couldn't think clearly, the next logical piece to that was, well, what do I do when I retire? To your point, mm. I've spent all of this time being this individual with these abilities, these high performers, where I can't even think. I don't have any cognitive bandwidth. I'm drained. Mm. I'm emotionally drained and mentally drained. And that then is where a lot of this became important to me from that cognitive aspect. Yeah, it's, it's um, I, I went to the vet, VA yesterday okay. and um, I wanted to get a checkup. And I went to the Veteran Affairs in Orem, which is a smaller clinic separate from the Salt Lake City VA hospital. And the doctor who came in, I think he was a PA, but he might've been a medical doctor. He, he asked me, hey, what am I here for? And I said, a physical assessment, but I want a little bit more in-depth uh, optic. I want to look at my brain. I want to mm -hmm. look at my joints. I want to look at my blood. And he asked me, he goes, um, well, uh, what's your combat experience? I was like, well, <laughs> get a pen and paper. Be prepared to copy. Mm -hmm. and, and we went through all the things, and he said, well, talk to me about TBI because you have diagnosed 100% service-connected total and permanent TBI. Tell me about your TBI. And I said, well, I, I have so many instances of TBI of getting my head rung, whether it was Carl Gustafs firing it in combat, mm -hmm. uh, 106 millimeter rockets, mortar, dropping 120s on bad guys, whatever it was. Um, there's so many, even in my prefrontal memories, remembering those, th those instances, and a lot of it that's buried that I don't mm -hmm. remember. And it's physical injury. So a lot of the systems that the VA attributes mental health issues with the veteran has to do with mental health issues stem from, like you said, mm -hmm. post-traumatic circumstance. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you have a conditioned soldier who is going overseas and trauma is their job? Mm -hmm. Like it's not like yep. I, I'm out there and trauma is is the significant thing that changes my life forever. What if your entire experience is trauma because that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's the the debate was um, about valorous awards, right? They would say, well, a valorous award is when you do something valorous in the moment of an operation. And we said, well, what if you kick in a door every night? and are getting in gunfights every other night, mm -hmm. and that's part of the protocol. Oh, we need to come up with a different process then. Maybe it's Valorant Unit Awards, maybe, it, maybe mm. it's um, Valorous Service Awards, and it, there's a different kind of soldier who is exposed to the, these kind of things. And what I've realized at, at assessing my own um, 
walking into this room and going, why did I walk in here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I had the ability in my job to be assessed, have gates, have parameters, I'm being tested. I have analytics I could derive my cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. I can go, okay, yeah, I'm having problems, right? But what happens when the baseline changes and you walk around your everyday life and you're like, I have no idea why I'm in this room. Um, Why was I playing with my kid? Like, what was I doing? I can't remember what I did yesterday. Where are my car keys? Because I've lost my car keys like 50 times this week. So that for the military, veteran affairs system, healthcare, name it, nonprofit organizations, mm-hmm. they, it's, it's a new thing. You know, it's fairly new. Uh, what I like about, you know, your social media, and we talked about this social media aspect of this, is, uh, is it's new to you. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a real good job at like telling the truth by giving your vulnerabilities. Like volunteering your vulnerabilities is like the most impactful, honest thing that you could do. Because if if it affects one person's life where they say, man, if this guy who has a special operations background can be vulnerable about the moments where he was in the dumps and that helps them not kill themselves, then it's for something. When you, What is the structure of what you're trying to build and how you're trying to help veterans in advocacy? Um, are you building something on the back end? What's the plan here? That's this, you know, great assessment. Uh, first of all, thank you for framing your experiences um, with traumatic brain injuries, understanding PTS, the VA, because I think that's a critical piece. And, I'll, and I'd love to touch back on that um, because th- what you just covered is where people are losing hope, right? And that's, mm. and, and my goal is, right, we know this from support your survival. Don't lose hope, at least in my sense. I, I told my spouse every time, I'm going to go, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going. It's going to be chaotic, right? But I will come back. I will not lose hope. If I have to walk back, that's the one thing in my mind that I know I can do. Mm-hmm. I can walk and I can walk for days, right? I will, I will get back home. And so what I wanted to try to do is give people hope and be able to relate. I.e., as we mentioned kind of earlier, you, the Tom Satterleys, the Chris Von Sons, you know, Brad and, and DJ Shipley and a couple of other guys that I listened to their stories and I worked, we worked in the same communities, probably overlaid in a lot of the sh- same shitty little piece, you know, places around the world. And I'm like, wow, these guys are doing that, right? As, again, as I'm, I'm getting ready to step out. And so they became my, you guys became my virtual mentors. Because I didn't, I didn't need to talk to you. I just see your example. I understand your thought process. I know what your mission was. I'm like, well, that's very similar to what my mission, I want my mission to be. However, what I put into, and I mentioned it to you earlier, is I didn't want to have any compromise, right? I didn't, I don't, I don't want affiliations because I understood what that can be dangerous, right? Mm. I don't want a brand. I don't need to make money. I want to be me. And there's also a therapeutic piece of this to this as well. Mm. You know, I still owe Nyko because they do um, art therapy. Art therapy is very powerful. Mm. If you walk into Nyko at Walter Reed, you can probably tell who drew a mask, because they do the masks. Yeah. And you're probably like, I think I know that guy. Wow. Or I think I know, because you can see it, it relates yeah. to you, right? It's one piece of us as a soldier, and then it be, and it's the other side of the face of the mask, it's who we had to become, and through the eyes you see their fear. Hmm. Powerful mask, right? And so I had so many masks that I needed to do, I couldn't finish them on time. And so as I was getting out, I'm like, well, another therapy, another way of helping, right? And we, we've always known that we actually learn from teaching, 
right? And there's a good piece of it. So I'm yeah. like, okay, how do I ball all of that up? How do I also give back to my family? Let me find a way without going to jail uh, that I can give back to, to my friends that I left in Hialeah 29 years ago. And, you know, 23 years after that or, or six years after that, I fell off the face of the map, right? For certain reasons. And so the social media, I analyze it and I kind of was mentioned to him like, okay, how do I use everything that I've learned in the last you know, 20 years or 23 years in special operations to essentially find bad people, but to create reach to vulnerable veterans. A lot of them were people that I worked with, mm-hmm. right? That I'm like, I know they at least have Instagram accounts because they're for whatever reasons. How do I get a message out? And so I took me a little bit of fumbling through originally, uh, you know, as part of my therapy too, was weapons and firearms, mm-hmm. right? You're going to laugh like f- forever. I only had one gun and one bullet at the house, right? And, and, and the joke at the house is because I'm married to a Brazilian and mm-hmm. you don't want to be, you know, have a Brazilian with a loaded gun when, <laughs> when you come back. So for real, like everybody laughs. You're like, how did you only have one gun? And then all of a sudden I now, I don't know how many guns I own in the house and I build them. So that was my therapy, right? So I started to build guns as something that I can use transitional. Because again, as we talked about, I was getting away, uh, I was leaving back that persona, that life, mm-hmm. right? No longer Eric from the unit, he needs to be someone else, right? Like that, that that's the reality, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave as a leader, as a soldier, as a Marine, but that operator is kind of done. That was for that, that time frame. Mm-hmm. And so I went to social media um, and learning it, right? Uh, with posting about guns and, and certain about, uh, and think following you like into EDC. Mm-hmm. And I realized that EDC was really powerful because you would hook law enforcement, you would hook citizens, military, and then I would share a picture because I saw, I copied you guys. So I would see your, what is it, the throwback Thursdays. I'm like, wow. And then you were really good where you would share a moment in time and what you felt. And I'm like, that's exactly what I need to do mm. because I didn't, I didn't want to come out and go, hey, here's me you know, wearing an MFF rig or whatever. I'm a cool guy. No, I wanted to be able to talk about what that meant. Where was I at that moment? Mm. in my headspace, what I was feeling. And so that's what kind of transpired. And then I would get the feedback and that was really good, right? And so I would get just regular military people connecting and thanking me for sharing that introspectiveness. Mm. And I'm like, this is it. And my whole plan was if I just stop one person walking backwards from the side of that bed with that 45 or one person who then helps another, right? You know, training of, of FID missions. If I train one, they train two. Two ter- train four, and it's becoming to grow. And so that was essentially my plan was, I know I need to go north. I'm gonna go that way and whatever bumps I get, I'm gonna adjust to it. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm at now. And so to the last part of your question, it's taken a little bit of a toll. We talked about this and as I heard your other podcast on mental health. Mm-hmm. I was kind of going down that rabbit hole. It became an, too much of an identity for me, so I needed to back up, right? I need back up a little bit. I felt that I was able to put out sort of a little movement, a little platform, but the biggest thing was interconnecting people with resources. Mm-hmm. Those that had, so Warriors Heart, right? All Secure, uh, the one that I, I help now, Military Special Operations Family Collaborative, just a wealth of knowledge. And that became much more powerful than in, at an individual level. For decades, buying a silencer has been difficult, but in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So what happens when you buy from Silencer Central? Well, 
They help you find the right silencer for you. They handle the paperwork so you don't have to. And they give you a free NFA gun trust so you can share your suppressor. Silencer Central allows you to pay while you wait. They make sure your purchase is carefully prepped, packaged, and protected until the moment you're approved. Once approved, they deliver it straight to your door. So whether you're planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central, straight to your front door. Mm, What was the recognition that you needed to pull back? Because I, I, you know, I, like people think, here's a misperception. People think I'm always on social. It's because you see the frequency or maybe volume of the content that I put out. But all that is very strategic and Mm -hmm. deliberate because I strike a balance. Like both of my accounts, I think, let's just talk about Instagram. I don't even have, people don't even have the ability unless they follow me and unless I follow them, I think, to even message me. They Mm -hmm. could email me for business inquiries, but I just don't have a lot of time in my life to scroll, click, and do the thing. And like you said, I started social media because it was my own therapy. I mean, the the most therapeutic thing I've ever seen in interviewing Lee Busby, uh, SMU guy, Chris Van Zandt, all these amazing, Tom, Tom, Kyle Lamb, all these guys, is in the conversation, it becomes our own therapy to mm-hmm. get things that are in our head outside reframing it and then realizing, oh, maybe I get a little perspective. It's not that bad. Yep. Or it feels good to get it off our chest because we've been suppressing it for so long. So those posts and those things that I do um, are for that therapeutic reason. Now, obviously, there's some branding because I own a business and, and we do some stuff. Um, but the recognition for me was oh, I'm, I'm trying to negotiate my phone with my child. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is not working for me. Where I'm prioritizing the post, the reading of the comments, the likes, measuring that over potentially my kid who's in front of me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this, guy, this has to be put down. What was the indication for you? And what were, the, what were the behavioral shifts that you had to implement in order for you to kind of like just create some space? My wife. Mm, nice. Just straight up. The Brazilian. The Brazilian, right? Uh, you know, and, and Brazilian part German, so the German oh, wow. straight would <laughs> always come, right? And so uh, there was a great balance in the beginning because she she knew it was therapeutic. She knew, right, um, that that was helping me, that I was helping others. She knew my pain. She knew she would get reflections um, from our friends that were uh, monitoring her family and going, wow, that's really good what Eric's sharing, right? But with all of that, there was also a concern. And the first concern was, hey, are you thinking about what you're posting and what you're saying? Right, again, as I mentioned to you earlier, like she lived at least the, you know, the 18 years or the 20 years that I was there that we were married. It was don't post anything, don't share my photo, don't tell anybody, right? The story of every time I travel was I was going to Germany. Like every, either that, it was Iraq, Afghanistan, was easy to tell her. Everything else was, I was going to Germany, I was going somewhere else, right? And that was for 18 years, so she had to live that. And then for her to see me doing that on, on Instagram, even though she understands that I know the technology, I know mm. some of the psychology behind the technology, she was worried. Mm. And she's like, you're getting deep into it, right? Uh, hey, you got the honey to do list. You have a teenage boy that is starting to figure out who you are and what you've been doing, right? So, um, and then for us, it was probably a year, and this summer, I made a key change to change sort of the employment that I was doing, Mm. um, and I think I mentioned it to you, and go back to school, right? Mm. And so I decided 
um, because cognitively I was doing better. I was sleeping. I was looking at my TBI. I was taking care of my mental health. I was all of that. I was taking care of my marriage. I was refocusing and I already, uh, it felt good to have put, you know, Echo 9, the platform out with some measure that it would grow and help connect those in, that um, associated with me to organizations that that's what they did. For example, I'm a big advocate of Warrior's Heart, you know, Tom Satterley, Jen Satterley, though, and, and there's many, many other more. And so I felt that I basically created the reach of people that trusted that when I would post, and that's the other thing, you're not taking away from people's time. You have to value people's time. Mm -hmm. I value I value people's time more today than I did in the service because when we were in these units, we worked 24 seven. Mm. Life as a civilian doesn't work that way anymore. So I wanted to be very cautious about what I posted, but it was my wife saying, hey, you're spending a lot of time, time in there. Like, are you really thinking about what you're doing? And so I, I had to assess where I'm at and go, all right, I'm going to back this off. And additionally, I'm gonna remove Instagram from my phone. Right, so part of the program that I'm doing, my PhD is in cyber psychology. I wanted to understand, you know, essentially it's the- uh, Cyber psychology, <laughs> wow, yeah. that's awesome. It's the intersection between humans and technology. That can and go- And understanding the psychology yep. behind, so I imagine that this curriculum, you, there's a lot of obviously old legacy analysis that's taking place, but you're pioneering, this is pioneering a new perspective because this yep. is something new right it, it, it wow. is yeah and so you know uh, at work I did a lot of um, highly technical work right so I, I've done you know from all the ints I've basically done all of them mm -hmm. uh, I did do a lot of focus on on computer network operations early on mm -hmm. you know the things that were bolted onto us so we can be much more effective on mm -hmm. the battlefield right we, we kind of spoke about that but I realized that 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 highly technical work drained me I just imagine just being a regular SF operator. Mm -hmm. When we talked about it, guys are cognitively drained. They're tired. They're beat up. They can't think. Now imagine when you're now throwing on there all of this other highly technical work, right? That gets more when you get higher up in the, the food chain, if you would. You're going to be, you got placement and access. So now I'm, and you're, and you're a highly intelligent operator. I'm going to put more on you to do. However, the whole system doesn't account for the fine tuning of the brain. We'll give you Motrin, we'll give you Tylenol, we'll give you a CPAP machine, right? I'm just saying, but we won't figure out necessarily how to, how to get that brain tuned. And so I chose cyber psychology for many, many reasons, right? One of them was I think that we lose a lot of guys because of the cognitive piece, right? Just like we talked about. Yeah, interesting. Uh, for, yeah. for whatever reasons, I think some of them are work-related. And so just like you, I think you were as well, I left the organization as the, the UNIT's G8 CDD sergeant major. So for about four years, that was my life, right? I, was, uh, I wasn't necessarily going to go and take over a squadron. I thought that leaving a legacy in, in the organization would be through capabilities, right? That's just one way I felt very passionate. And so one aspect of it was the technologies and the things that, that uh, we would uh, need to develop. And so that highly technical work, I'm like, okay, we want guys to do way more than we're looking at how their brains can actually do it. And in particular, I mean, and I didn't discuss it with you earlier, but disruptive technology. I think one of the most disruptive technologies that at least the military has leveraged is that same cell phone that we have just been talking about. Mm. You can drop a day dam using your phone now. Mm. I mean, I remember how, what, what did we used to call those big ass boxes that we used to, you know, to get on top of a mountain and, and, mm -hmm. and lays, and now you can do it through ATAC. 
you can control a UAV, you can see your team, you can measure biometrics, All you can do phone. special yeah. communications just on a cell phone, right? But what does that mean? That means the human psychology is being submersed into the same phone that we use to now wage war. But when we get back at home, we're sucked into the Instagrams, into the LinkedIn's, into you know the TikToks, into all of that stuff. So I wanted to study that for many reasons. Personal reason is, you know, I'm not going to go be a doctor. I love research. I love to be able to solve hard problems. And one of them was, how do I help our people understand the way we think? And we, just similar to the stuff that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. I, it scares the crap out of me because I, you know, I have, I've seen. Special operations guys, you know, from the myriad of all the community services, get out, get on social, and use it as a weaponizing platform to activate people in toxic ways. Oh yeah. And I, when I see that, besides being offended in my own personal way, I, I see it, and I actually am scared for those people because I, I used when I first came, one of the things, you know. If Black Rifle audiences have followed me since the very beginning, Soft Survivor was my first original account. I, me and like three other dudes that I could name, um, were like the first guys in special operations that came out as guys on social media. Hmm. Not that I'm an, not that like I'm the origin of that, but I remember being like one of the first guys to come out. It, at least from the Green Beret community, and go, hey, I was a SF guy. Here's some of my experiences, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We we're just navigating it and figuring <laughs> it out. But I went down rabbit holes where I was. I've, I did lives where I was like attacking people in their basements. I mean, literally, these dudes were in their basements. <laughs> but I realized the impact psychologically it had on me. Yep. And when I see these guys come out of the woodwork, and they're, it, it's about scarcity. So where they come from, where we come from, there's abundance. And then when you come out into the civilian world, you think it's it's feast and famine. And you're in a position of famine because there's scarcity across markets, across whatever your incentive is, and you get scared. And that scare turns into emotion, and then you become desperate. And you rally your tribe to attack another tribe, and you're playing war, mm -hmm. chess, on a battlefield, that's very dangerous because the psychology leads to suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yep. Depression, anxiety, all the things that build up to suicide is the taxing of what you're evolving into. And you think it's evolution. It's not. You'll never be in a good position after going down those roads. So what I said one day was, I'm done with it, man. I, I can't. I am not going to spend any energy on any platform um, invested in being negative, only being positive. And, you know, I've, I've followed the lead of many people like Jack Carr, like mm. DJ Shipley, uh, you know, post this experience, Sean Ryan, mm -hmm. these guys who are like, dude, don't do anything at all that's toxic on social because when you do, you're never going to recover from that. It's very difficult to recover from that. So I've created separation in my own ways. My fear is most people don't have the discipline to be able to do that, Right. When you look at this advanced degree and the understanding, and even in your own experience, what is your prediction of what this looks like if we don't get a grasp for the veteran, for, I mean, society? If we don't start taking hold and responsibility and advocating for the right things, 
Where does this lead us down the road? And then uh, do you have any personal advice in being disciplined yourself and actually pulling back to help people that are in this situation? Absolutely. I, I would say, at least for me, the practice that I did, and I and I essentially did an experiment, right? I um, And it was... I had read the book, and I, I, I'll send I'll send you a copy. It's actually one of the, my professors. Her name is uh, Dr. Mary Atkins, and she's the spokesperson, if you would, uh, globally for cyber psychology. And she's a forensic cyber psychology. And actually, she was uh, it, uh, her the character in um, CSI Cyber is actually her. And so she did oh, a wow. phenomenal way of understanding. She's out, she's out of Ireland, uh, and when I read her book, as she's part of the university. I'm like, okay, well, I need to read up on my professor um, and, and really understand from her perspective because she looks at it more from a forensics, criminal detective, right? And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. that can align more to what I think I can pull, uh, pull out of it. And it was the dopamine. She's like, hey, you're getting hooked on the dopamine. I'm like, what the hell is dopamine? Right? Like, with as much as we know about everything, I, I love to be shocked. I'm like, ah, look, Google, what the hell is dopamine? I'm like, oh, that's that feeling. That's that adrenaline. That's why I kept on going down these rabbit holes, right? And you're, you know, you're, <laughs> you go to go to sleep and your wife goes to the bathroom, you pull the phone again for one last one. I'm like, okay, that's bad behavior. And the world we come from, especially, you know, you were also, you know, as a sniper in that discipline, in that mental, and that, you know, and I'm like, ooh, I am going against every fabric of things that I've learned yes. to do, right? <laughs> like, you know, in, in the level of our tradecraft is compared to a ranger, ranger's gonna go take that hill. For us, we assess that hill and go, not today. Mm -hmm. I'll come back tomorrow when the mm -hmm. conditions are right. And so I started to see myself go down that route of, and there was a learning experience, but there was also the, the way that those social medias, they're designed to make money, right? So follow the money, find the bad guy. Understand that these media, these, these uh, social outlets are meant to make money. Good, bad, or indifferent, right? However, the way that they're engineered, they'll suck you down because they start to memorize what you do, what you look like, how long you stare at something, or even like, I know my wife sometimes is going to buy something because then Instagram is showing me a um, advertising mm -hmm. for, let's just say, the Aura Ring when she was Googling Aura Ring through our Wi-Fi network in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. right? So it's just meant to make money, but the human is the one that's suffering. Right, and, f and when we relate it back to family, you know, I cannot wait to take that phone away from my kid, but it's too late, he's 17 years old, mm. right? My, you know, and so when I looked at, you know, just like you and your, your, and your family, that was of importance to me. Um, and then when I read the book and it explained to me about the effects, the engineering, I said, okay, let me do an experiment. And so I literally, did, I said like, like a little sip rip on, on, uh, on social media, I said, hey, I'm pursuing a degree, you know, this is what I'm going to take a little bit of a, I still love you guys. I'm still going to keep on doing research uh, to support veterans and mental health. Uh, however, I, I need to take a break. And that break is I literally took it off at a burner phone and I put that on Instagram and my behavior has changed, mm. right? Like that phone right now, it's just a phone. I've removed anything that's social media. And even sometimes if I see myself digging into it, just it's that, that, um, that discipline that we have and say, take it out. Just mm -hmm. acknowledging it. Hey man, you're wasting time. Your family is waiting for you. You're constantly clicking. So now I just love that my Instagram and my LinkedIn are on my separate phone. Mm -hmm. I am now focusing, you know, and I do a lot of reading. So I like paper books. I'd like to go out and from a mental health, go out and walk and, and do all of these things and spend time with my family. Um, so to a point you ask, you know, what do I recommend? I, I recommend you almost you do it on a separate device. Because we've made that phone an extension of who we are, and it shouldn't. It's a tool.
Mm. Right. You're, you need to live life outdoors in, in nature with your family, um, within your own brain, not the phone as your brain, your own brain into the creative piece of it. Go be creative. Mm. You know, um, that's what I would say with that. Yeah, it's, you remember those little green books that we used to get issued in supply? Mm-hmm. And you know, you would, you would, you use a green book because all the things that you would consciously or subconsciously have to remember, mm-hmm. you would be able to reference it and kind of expand your capability. Right, because now you didn't have to tax your capacity mm-hmm. because you could have it in the green book, and the phone beneficially was to optimize your life mm-hmm. because you could have the notes, you could have the contacts, but there's a point of diminishment, right? The mm-hmm. return on investment gets diminished once you're taxing your behavior because you're feeding for the dopamine. I mean, literally, this is a bag full of. Dope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it literally is. It, it literally is. And D- Dopamine Nation, which is a great, great book on the the understanding of that dopamine, makes you realize, holy crap, man, all this behavior, all the negative things that's pulling me away from my family can be prevented with discipline, with tactics to be able to do that. Um, how do you think, I mean, nobody really knows what this means years down the road. And one of my biggest fears, like I'm going tomorrow to a Black Rifle Coffee to, to do a survival seminar. And my survival seminars have shifted from like technical avocation, hey guys, get in the weeds, EDC, mobility, all this stuff, to holy crap, get off your phones, mm-hmm. focus on family, build a family unit, and then you could scale up from there. Where do we see ourselves in years down the road um, when you just have a, a glimpse at the surface and then you're starting to penetrate the understanding, especially in the academics, of where this evolves or de-evolves us as a mm-hmm. society. I think it doesn't look good, right? Because we continue to, you know, like stuff like meta, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the AR and the VR and, and going into these 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 other worlds, like I'm literally studying that, right? So I'm going to, part of my studies is to evaluate because... Uh, again, back to the veteran advocacy is, is my North Star, right? Mm-hmm. And my family, obviously, more than that. But I look at that, and there have been reports where uh, VR and AR has been used um, for veterans with post-traumatic stress, right? Mm-hmm. Just to, I, I haven't tried it. I've read a report by somebody that I respect. I'm like, okay, this can make sense. But again, we're, we're, we're trying to use that technology, right? And I reflected back, oh, I used therapy, so, you know, and this would be kind of a plug for the organization. I think you know them, Headstrong. Mm. So Headstrong has just been amazing for me, right? I, I, I went to Headstrong, even when I was in the unit, um, when, when my two friends died really quick, and I said, I need help. Screw my badge, screw my clearance. I need to take care of my family. I'm not a good place. And someone mentioned to me about Headstrong, and I went and I got therapy. That's not therapy on a phone. That's therapy with a human Mm. Right, that I build a relationship that understands me. And then this person, my therapist, actually had worked at NICO, so she understood soft operators and what we go through. And it was key. So I didn't have to rely. And there's a, you know, the VA, you can download four apps on PTS and all that. I'm like, I don't want to be on the phone. I want to interact with the human. I want to then talk to that human, turn around and share that with my spouse. So I share my therapies with my spouse. Hey, honey, here's what I learned today. Right. And that's been powerful because that's that unity. Right, and it's no longer Eric's secret work and the demons and the Pandora's boxes. He's sharing that with me. But back to the technology is going. I need to. 
I, I don't want apps to help me with PTS. I don't want apps to do that. I want to get back to people or a different perspective of how to view, how to go about life without being on a phone. And again, I'm a techno geek. I love technology, but I also love to hate technology, right? In the aspect of that was a time and place, got it, it's done. I need to get outside. I need to go hold my son's hand. You know, I need to go see him wrestle, right? I need to learn from a book. I, I don't like reading on, on, a, on a laptop. I'd rather get a book. I get a highlighter, and I'm like, this is going to be the best $25 I spent on this book, and I highlight the hell out of it. And I can feel my brain, you know, just the neurons firing, the excitement, uh, and I sleep better, right? And there's also that aspect about sleep. Mm. And, you know, really quick, and if, if, if I may, that is one of the key problems that we have is we don't sleep. Right? Veterans, you know, soft guys, right? And I was explaining to your wife with, with the ring, the aura, where... This is the only piece of technology that I, I, one of the pieces of technology that is helping me. So I like technology that helps the human, that, but not the one that drags you in it. And social media drags you in. Because at the end, they're trying to make billions of dollars. And the other layer of it, which is what you know, we'll, we can cover later, is that adversarial use of Instagram. Like mm. I try telling my wife you know, or my family about the Russians and the Chinese and the propaganda, and they just look at me like, your conspiracy. I'm like, no, <laughs> like I've studied it. I understand it. I can see the bots engaging with the people. And that's also an issue. So a lot of these people that are seeking, so, you know, veterans that may be suicidal, that need help, that are, are you know, going to Instagram, don't realize that some of that communications that they, they're not real people, they're bots mm. for whatever malicious potential reasons. That's not a real humanistic relationship. So I started to identify that too when I, on my Instagram and you're getting all of these people trying to connect and you're like, okay, you know, adversarial, one of the top four, I know it's you, mm -hmm. right? I'm not falling for that. And I'm like, we understand that. Can you imagine people that don't understand how they're getting hooked? Mm -hmm. Again, not only from the platform, but all of the other crap and people and malicious entities that work in there beyond just the toxicity. So I would say, you know, simplicity is just removing ourselves that I want to get an old Nokia phone with buttons, right? I remember operating with a phone. We started to use it for navigation. We started to use it for wind calculations. We started to use it as a camera. I am today going, I like that feature, but what happens when that battery dies, especially in your survival? That battery will die. Mm -hmm. You know, we, there was a comment before of, of soldiers that don't even, they don't even teach them how to use compasses anymore. Mm. Okay, that's wrong, yeah. right? Hey, it's gotta get to the basics. So I think it's finding that balance removing ourselves from it, getting back to books, getting back to being with family and just you know, viewing life from a different perspective. Mm. Like all the things that you said remind me of like an analog, more analog approach to life, which is weird because the fact that we're talking about doing things that we used to do, that we did growing up in the military, like reading a paper book, book, like paperback book, that's I carried one with me every deployment right before I went to to sleep with a headlamp any opportunities I got that was an, my analog experience and to just get back to the basics of things it's like that's how we become better and it is it, mm -hmm. it, it is um, I got a hundred people that are going to this black rifle coffee survival seminar in a 200 square foot black rifle coffee shop which is going to be difficult to do mm. but it's because they crave um, interpersonal experience. Like I, I have, um, we just had this resilience rendezvous. The next one is 28 April through the, you know, a week into May. And uh, Andy Stump will be there. Leah, his wife doing jujitsu. He does leadership. 
Brian Peters, um, a professional football player, does cold, hot therapy. The whole premise is bringing people together to make them more resilient. But what we realized in the first course we ran um, months ago was when people show up, they don't know what they want. And they're like, I just want to be resilient. I'm like, do you know what that means? No. And so what we actually find out, they're not just there for the tools and the tactics and context. They're there because they want the interpersonal relationship. Mm -hmm. And by day two, we're breaking bread with a chef from Park City, uh, John mm -hmm. Courtney. We're having these amazing conversations. We're talking about family. And then when they walk away from it, they're on this high. And they're like, oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, I gave you tools because Brian Peters talked to you about breathing and meditation. And Annie talked to you about leadership and management. And that's cool. But what you actually walk away from feeling on the high is, holy crap, I just did something with people and it felt good to be with people again. And so, like you said, um, I just I just talked to a guy yesterday who was like, hey, you hear there's this new app that you can get on where you could do uh, counseling. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. Mm -hmm. Like, that's cool because you have ready access. And uh, another guy uh, at one of the seminars was a law enforcement officer. He said, hey, everybody's got a cell phone and they could reach a counselor in a crisis. And I get that. I'm mm -hmm. all about that. But holy crap, man, can't we stop optimizing everything we're doing and get back to basics? Yep. Like to get actual, when I get 100 people who show up at a seminar, I want to just give them, like I want to congratulate all of them. And dude, you made it. Mm -hmm. And like, what do you mean? Like mm -hmm. the fact you signed up on a link that you got in your car, you drove somewhere and you didn't even understand what it was taking place and you actually arrived, congratulations. Mm -hmm. Because most people won't. And um, we need more of that shit, right? We need more of those interpersonal relationships. No, and I love how you say that. And you know, in looking at it from from this perspective, and from your survival, is when, let's just say something wrong happens, right? Mm. Uh, name what it, what it would be. Then let's just say the power goes off, right? And technology goes off. You're gonna have to go back to being humans and interacting with humans. So mm. I think what you just said is. I'm arming you, you're doing a, a drill run of what it is to re-engage with people mm. with a certain focus. You're coming in with a certain focus. You know, you've, you've outlined what the course is going to be. I love that you said, hey, just getting in the congratulations. Because mm. it is, it's, it's not, that is now the new norm. Like e even coming here and doing this with you physically, mm. God, it just checks so many blocks. Like I did another one that was virtual and yeah, I'm going through the screen, but I can't see the body language. I can't see the room. I can't see your dog and your wife. And that's where the memories are made, right? Those sidebar conversations that you have with the person. Mm. And you can see them and you can see the hurt maybe. And like, hey, man, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And there's nothing much more powerful than, you know, especially that we can read somebody and come up with an approach with that sort of vulnerability and go, hey, What's going on with you? How can I talk to you? You can't walk away from it. You can't pretend to go through a tunnel. You can't hit the off button. You're in front of me. You're going to need to deal with me, especially when I'm here to help you. So to your point on the resilience in the study and bringing people together, that's already being one of the things that we're looking at, at least from a nonprofit, that we have to ensure that connectivity and that people are present at awards, at dinners, that when, when they're at dinner, they're there removing the phones and having those conversations, you know, some of the stuff that Jen, uh, Jen Satterley and Tom talk about, right? I love their post. You know, they went from a certain things and now they're doing like the couple and the love and, 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 and being there at the moment with each other. So I'm like, 
that's what we got to get back to. We got to get back at the value. And they may not be perfect. I mean, my house with three Scorpios, we wake up, you know, screaming at each other and we go to sleep screaming at each other, but we tell each other every moment we love each other, mm. but we have to be able to sit, remove those things and communicate. How was your day? How are you doing? Look at each other's body language, you know? Um, I think that's just, that's how we get back to just being human, the humanistic side of life, you know? And there's so much beauty. I like, just for example, I, I mentioned to you, just coming over here and making this connection with you, like I just appreciate and love the way of what you're doing, just a human, and I just met you. I met you virtually, I kind of understood you, but I didn't know you. Mm. I've just seen you here in two hours, and I already know the type of man that you are, mm. and it's powerful. And that is my dopamine. This interaction mm. with you right now will forever shape me in the sense that I know who you are as a character and how I want to be, and I think that's what we need to do as mentors. Mm. Right, you've shown vulnerability. You've shown strength. I've seen you juggle in the last fifteen minutes, a hundred and one things for your business, and then you're back on point because of the mission you're trying to get. And so it reinforces that importance. I mean, I flew around the country to, you know, glad I did come to your house uh, to do this podcast. I didn't know where I was going to end up, but now I, I value this, and that is my dopamine. I don't need to go to my phone and check your post, but I now know how to take one of your posts and craft it so someone sees it and continuing to build that reach. Jeez, man, that's powerful. Uh, not because he talked, you talked, you gave me uh, <laughs> all that. Thank you for that as, as well. But I think it's so powerful because that's what it is, right? It's like we need to redefine our dopamine. You know, we need to redefine what drives us, what satisfies us, what brings us profound purpose. And we're lost. We're being controlled by an algorithm. I, uh, you know, profoundly the reason why I can get up every day and kind of just grind, you know, the nose is on the grindstone always. It's because of these type of interpersonal reactions and these interactions that build me as a person are beneficial to me as a human being just as much as they're beneficial to other people. It's a reciprocating relationship and that's how we grow together. And what I, what's, what I find interesting is there's almost a direct correlation in a very narrow niche field of special operators and the experience of becoming disassociated from things that are important and then the correlation of society as a whole being pulled by technology mm -hmm. away from those same factors which creates this understanding from a, a special operations person perspective. Man, I live this life, it pulled me away and there's a path back there's also a path back for society to go, man, I've been pulled away by this technology, you know, take out operations, put in technology, mm -hmm. and now there's a path back to getting healthy. And it just takes proactive behavior, it takes habits, routines that are making yourself, like, like you said, with your family. Um, but it just takes you to be conscious and aware in your own life, mm -hmm. to be self-aware, to have the introspect, and just not to wake up 10 years down the road and go, how did I become morbidly obese? Mm -hmm. I was eating a bag of Doritos off my belly, out of my belly button for, <laughs> for 10 years. It's not hard to do. We could end up in that uh, same uh, situation in the future if we're not paying attention. Um, man, I know we're at the tail end of the podcast, which um, sucks because I've, I've learned so much. Um, and you have a profound experience and, and profound way of 
communicating that experience that are, that's going to help people in the future. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do um, to kind of like present that for people to help them, whether it's a civilian or military person. Where can people find what you're doing? And is there anything in the future that you're doing that is going to allow people to kind of, you know, I, I want more. So mm-hmm. I imagine people who are going through some things want more as well. So I think right now, you know, and it's funny, you know, I, I point back to sort of my Instagram account just because um, there is a balance where I have to make sure that I'm here for my family, right? Uh, but I'm trying to do it in a very smart and efficient way, right? The way we were trained um, and put into place and enable organizations that do this on a daily basis, right? I want to be one of many voices, just a voice that if I resonate with someone who needs help, man, that's mission success, Yeah. right? I, I, I'm not here to conquer how to prevent suicide, but if I can be and relate my voice, my story, my origin, uh, and I, what I hope to do is get more of those that are like us, that came from the military and can be vulnerable, share their story, to have more people, just like you were saying about the resilience and people coming, right? I, I've seen the conversations with uh, with Andy and with Jack and the training you have gotten, right? Like that pulls people in. I just want to be, I'm okay now being just one pond. Like, right, like I, I'm used to that. Like I'm used to my uniqueness and what I do and what I was good at. Um, so I don't need to be, you know, uh, huge at this because again, I have to balance my family first. But I know I can be impactful because I come with one story and you know, and I represent uh, certain demographics. You know, like m- m- you know, my Latino family and you know, my military family, my Marines. Right? I've even pulled in law enforcement. You know, probably some of the things you experience. I got fo- folks from different parts of the world communicating with me. But what I want to be able to do now with the platforms is just make an awareness, make some of these videos communicate and then point to the people enable you enable the the uh, warrior's heart the you know the tom Saddleys, those people that are, that want to do this as a business right or as a nonprofit i don't want to do nonprofit work cuz right now again it's family and my studies right now are important self help i'm helping myself cuz i'm going through that process i study as i start as i study cognitive load i'm realizing what happened in my 20 years and where it happened and so I'm taking that lesson learned from my own research on me and my friends, and then I'm going to bring that back and share that. So even though I'm coming offline for a little bit, my focus to veteran advocacy is actually being amplified because I'm going into a PhD program specifically to understand that human aspect of being overwhelmed, right, through either the phone or the high level of, talk, of technical work that we did or just the life that we lived in soft is hard enough. Um, so you can find me on Instagram if from a professional perspective, LinkedIn, right? I've had a, it, it's that, that's been a really interesting one because people have seen my video. They've come and connected with me at a professional level and that has materialized in sharing videos or resources with other people at, at that platform, which I, I kind of enjoy. So hopefully that, that kind of helps, but I won't be able to do to your point. We talked about it, like the constant engagement. I've seen the power of it. I've connected to some people that have then take, taken my message. Uh, and that's been beautiful. Like I've made some connections with people that I've yet not met, but we were able to interconnect in a certain way because of the messaging and the care for veterans. But then I enabled them to go out to the Tom Tattleys and the wounded warriors, and then they have the energy to go do it. So my little piece on the chessboard, I think has been successful. And that's, that's where I'm at now. 
And I love the fact that you're so, and you're so aware of the future. So you're taking the time now to allocate even your own position in time with your family and even academia to be successful. A lot of people, and even me, did not realize that until the detriment, mm-hmm. you know, it was too late. Um, I'll, sergeant major to sergeant major, I'll give you. A, I want to give you a 500 meter challenge, and that would be think about doing a podcast. The reason I would say podcast over anything is one: when you pull somebody, like you said, being aware of their time. When you pull somebody aware, uh, away from their family or whatever it is, you have to be cognizant of that impact and value that you propose in that time. And you've already mentioned it because you're self-aware that way. When you do it in Instagram, it's only a, a swipe and a click, and it's very temporary. Mm-hmm. But when you do a podcast like the Black Rifle Podcast or my Mike Force Podcast or even longer forms like Andy Stump's podcast where we could talk for hours – you start to distill a lot that helps people in a one-way disseminated conversation, which removes yourself from the social engagement and the Mm -hmm. burden of time, but also allows them in their commute, in their own time, to gain from the experience like we did from the thousands of books I have in this house Mm -hmm. on on many deployments. We're, We're able to learn from those experiences. And you have a special way of intelligibly communicating information especially complex things that are hard for people to understand and distill. And you have, even on the East Coast, the ability to kind of bring in some of these people who are getting out, separating Mm -hmm. friends, whoever it is, nonprofits, to bring them in and host that conversation. So I just want to put that out there because I think it's the perfect balance. It's something that I've paid more attention to, even in my own content alignment and allocation of my own time. Um, that has helped, and I think uh, profoundly, it potentially is the future, not taxing more people on social media like Instagram, the dopamine yep. channel. Um, Eric, I want to say thank you so much for thank coming you. on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I learned so much, and I know the Black Rifle Coffee family has as well. You could find all of Eric's uh, links down below, also links to Warriors Heart Foundation, some other nonprofits that we mentioned, including All Secure Foundation. Tom Satterley and Jen Satterley. Um, And I appreciate um, you guys tuning in. Make sure you subscribe, hit the notification tab, and spread the word. Things like this in the conversation need to be be spread throughout so people who are potentially hurting can get the help they desperately need. Uh, Till next time, guys. Thank you so much. Peace out, guys. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Jump titties, boy!